The Offsite Podcast is presented by Offsite Consulting, offering financial consulting programs for small business owners and nonprofit leaders. Find Offsite on the web at auphsite.com. Joe Taylor Jr. with Darnell Suleiman here on episode four of the Offsite Podcast. Hey, Good how afternoon. you doing, Joe? I'm Thanks, doing man. well. Uh, so for the interest of continuity, you may hear a lot of frivolity and fun going on in the background. As usual, we're at Benjamin's desk in the heart of Center City, Philadelphia. And even though this is airing in December, we're recording this on a day in November where we're experiencing just freakishly lovely <laughs> summer weather, even yeah. though it's yeah. a couple of days before Thanksgiving. So the there's a whole lot of folks outside our window uh, who you will hear in the background as we talk today. Our topic, uh, rounding up the first series on the podcast, is five unfortunate accidents. I won't call them worst practices, but <laughs> unfortunate things that happen to nonprofit organizations. We've been looking at research conducted by folks at the Harvard Business School for the past few weeks, uh, best practices and things to avoid. And we're now at the point where we're talking about nonprofit organizations and five big mistakes that they make with their accounting. So Ground rules for this week, we're assuming positive intent across the board. We're assuming that um, even though we've touched on a lot of ethical lapses uh, Mm -hmm. that folks have experienced in the past few weeks, uh, what we want to talk about are what we see most often, which tend to be folks get into roles at nonprofits because they're hired by people that know them very well, friends, family members, people they trust, mm-hmm. or they have started a nonprofit organization because they feel like they want to accomplish a mission or a vision. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, some visions are more altruistic than others, but again, we'll assume positive intent here. <laughs> so one of the five biggest, possibly the biggest mistake that new nonprofits make, according to Harvard and other researchers, uh, putting undertrained staff in charge of accounting activities. And I'm sure you've seen this in your practice fairly often. Yes. I, um, wow. The untrained staff. And, that, and, and the untrained uh, person can, could be the business owner or it could be, you know, as you know, an employee or a 1099 person, uh, a professional consultant professional coming on in. Um, the untrained person. <laughs> so um, normally what I see is um, with the untrained person, they book uh, everything not correctly according to how expense wise it should be categorized, but also how it should be categorized according to the program itself. This to to fix this problem, to uh, rectify it, it, it costs a lot of money. A lot of money. So consider that if a nonprofit for uh, for a calendar year has not correctly uh, made made the correct expense allocations, so we're talking about uh, you know 365 days of you have to correct this, uh, and so uh, that by far is yeah the number one the the number one. And and we see that because as you said it's more challenging to go back in and fix the mistakes. And, and I'll tell you why. There's a rule in accounting. and We say, you can do it wrong. Do it always incorrectly the same way. When you have a person who's not an accountant and, 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 and they don't have the competency of how to screen and allocate according to uh, generally accepted accounting principles of the United States or, and also according to the grant, they kind of go off with their emotional gut feeling at that time. And so they may record uh, a cash register, uh, which could be an operating expense or fundraising expense, two different ways. You, you, you kind of got me. And so you're sitting there. Yeah. And so you have to go back 
and, uh, and, and, and make the corrections. And for folks that follow accounting, something like a cash register, which is a piece of equipment, equipment yes. you, you could make an argument that it's part of capital expenses. That's correct. You could make That's an correct. argument that it's part of the operating expenses. That is correct. But as long as you make the argument consistently one way or the other... We're happy. You're Cause, okay. Because we'll come and ask you, so when you when you purchase this cash register, when do you purchase it? So someone say, you know, well, we purchased it. It was part of our operating expense for our, our school store. We'll say, okay, cool, cool, cool. So, uh, but then someone in development may come and say, oh, we purchased this uh, cash register because now we're using it with Shopkeeper Square and uh, we wanted a fast way of collecting money, so... You know, we needed a portable one. So now that's a that's a fundraising uh, line item right now for expense. And then you get into blurred lines of items like iPads or computers that can have multiple purposes. Yes, yes. I seem to recall, for instance, uh, in, in one of my past lives, uh, photographers have tax exemptions for buying computers that are used only for the purpose of professional photography. And if you, for instance, were to use that computer for some other purpose, you could potentially lose that tax exemption. It was a big contention, but only a, a trained accountant would really know how to take advantage of those things one way or correct. the other. That is correct. And and so what we often see, we talked about this in great detail last week in episode three, where a lot of this comes from is managers, directors, board members, when they want to ensure that more of that grant or more of that donation is going to the program or to the service, they're looking for ways to cut back on operating expenses that aren't tied directly to delivering the mission. Mm-hmm. And so you end up with situations where folks will put volunteers or interns in places where there really should be professional oversight. That is correct. What's the, let's say for nonprofits that really are strapped, uh, hiring somebody like you might not necessarily be an option right now, but Mm -hmm. they do have the capacity to put a volunteer in the role. What are the minimum requirements in terms of training or education that a volunteer should have before they start Touching the books of a nonprofit organization. Associate's degree in accounting is basic. Because um, uh, as, as we're thinking, someone who's really bootstrapped, I said, well, if you get somebody with a bachelor's degree, they may want a travel voucher. So if we're talking about the guy who says, look, you know, um, you know I'm in my sophomore year or senior, uh, junior year of college. Uh, or, you know, well, you know what? Now we're actually, this is really interesting because we're now in an age where people don't mind volunteering with bachelor degrees. This is, <laughs> okay, so, okay, cool. So even if it's a person with a bachelor's degree, you, you want someone who understands the fundamentals, the basics of uh, general principles of accounting. That's fundamental. Now, when I was in, um, when I was in college, uh, I do not recall us doing much on a nonprofit side. Now there are, you know, there are actually sections where there uh, uh, semesters where they're squarely focused on it. But you want someone who also understands general subject accounting principles, but also has have a firm understanding of restricted and uh, non-restricted revenue and how uh, that should be uh, used with making purchases. Uh, they should also really understand and, and coordinate with the development officer the memorandum of understanding or the contract with with the grant, uh, because part of that decision making and as you're um, recording and or you're making your allocations, your expense allocations, is uh, how that is interpreted. You know, so how, how's it interpreted uh, on the uh, commitment or the grant? Uh, contract and how that's translated to financial reporting. So you want someone who understands the mission and, and your development officer to relay this, communicate this very effectively to um, the bookkeeper slash accountant. That's the, the, the key is that right there. Great. So on to number two of the top five mistakes that nonprofits make. Uh, this is another one that dogs every organization, and it's something that the IRS has paid 
very specific attention to lately. It's correct, incorrectly classifying employees. So the distinction between whether somebody's an employee or an independent contractor or a volunteer. So off the top of your head, what is an easy rule of thumb that an organization can use to determine if somebody's an employee or if somebody's an independent contractor? Employee taxes. We're, we're, you know, we're paying taxes. We're giving health and welfare benefits. That's an employee. They have um, a very set uh, uh a lot of amount of time, they 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 report to internal management. Uh, that's that. With when it comes to the ten ninety nine or or the uh, outside consultant, uh, what I normally see is they they come in with their own equipment. Uh, they they it's more there is a management uh, where they have a relationship with management and the management is directing them, but they're they they. First, they're issued a 1099, whereas the employees issued a 1040. So uh, they're issued a 1099. But their their role is not as isolated or dictated by the man, by the upper management. Um, they don't have benefits. They're not take you know, they're they're they just get paid a salary. That's I mean, uh, a, you know, whatever's a stated contract and amount. Uh, the volunteer is the guy who comes in and say, look, I'm trying to do this to, to boost my uh, college, you know, skill set, or um, you know, I, I believe in your mission. I don't want no pay. And normally, this guy, you know, he he'll, he'll, during Christmas time, he'll get a gift or something from the management or some type of donation for thanks for your support and help. But that's about it. And and it's an interesting distinction on the nonprofit side because a lot of for-profit companies have gotten in a lot of trouble lately for using intern roles inappropriately. And now it's funny. I sound like a crotchety old man when I start talking about how in my day (laughs) we went to the internship and we toiled because that was how we made our reputation. It's how we, you know, learned who was who it's how we got people to trust us to give us our first jobs. Right. Yeah. And so to some degree, if you look back on it, and I think about all the things that I did for no pay, <laughs> was I doing the work of an employee? Probably. Oftentimes, yeah. And yet, really good internships, and now what we would term legal internships, are as much about structuring an educational experience for the intern. I believe the rule of thumb to be that if a participant were to take away the same kind of knowledge and training from an internship that they would if they took a formal course at a college or university, Mm -hmm. uh, the the states and the federal government are going to be okay with that. That's correct. But if you're basically bringing an intern in and all the intern does is file paperwork and make copies- Yeah, you're yeah. you're going to be in trouble. Yeah. Now on the nonprofit side, because a nonprofit has qualified for these exemptions, yes, you can have a volunteer yes. that acts like an employee, but there's an agreement, and it's usually typed out and signed that says, "I am donating." My services. That's correct. And and if you look at it kind of like an in-kind donation. That's correct. I, right? was, I was thinking that. Do you get, um, for instance, as a volunteer, if I volunteer my time, do I get a statement at the end that says what my, the value of my time would be worth? Or am I just, just, is that not a thing? I have not seen that. I've only, I have only seen that level of engagement between uh, business to business. Uh, I, actually, I recall one, one, um, uh, one agreement memorandum of understanding where they were bringing shea butter and I believe from Kenya and it was with the NGO here in, in the States. And, uh, and, and it was just an agreement of the value of the exchange and, uh, and you booked it. That, that was all I, ha- I have not seen uh, an agreement where it says, Hey, you know, I'm volunteering and what is this worth? Cause immediately my, my, what I, I would think, in some communities, I have seen people take uh, such possible agreements like that 
and run to labor department and say I'm employed. Yeah. yeah. So that's that yeah. gets into a kind of a gray area. Yeah. I think the the other piece of it coming back to the distinction between vendors, right, mm-hmm. uh, and employees, a an independent contractor who's a vendor that's is going to come in with a statement that says the scope of their engagement. Uh, in general, a vendor controls where, when, how the work is going to get done. Yes. So, you know, and, and. Well, that's negotiated. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and sometimes it's more expedient to do that work on site at the nonprofit. Sometimes it's more expedient to do that at the office of the vendor. That's correct. Uh, But, but that's something that's negotiated out Mm -hmm. and it's all written out. Yes. It's all in a contract of some kind, or at least a memorandum of understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, where folks get into trouble is really where, uh, it hasn't been really spelled out and you start showing up and you have a boss, but you're not having taxes withheld. And even though it's a nonprofit, right. Um, Nonprofits still have to withhold payroll tax. That's correct. You're not exempt from payroll correct. tax, right? That is correct. So, so that's the piece where it seems like it's um, a a frustrating thing for a nonprofit to have to go through to classify employees, but that's beneficial to protect both the organization, organization. and the employees. That is correct. We're, we're here at Benjamin's Desk, one of the corporate sponsors at Benjamin's Desk. We're drinking out of cups supplied by a company called Trinet. Uh, and I bring that up only because what Trinet actually does is they do outsourced human resources. So if you're an organization and it's just too complex for you to actually mm-hmm. hire somebody, but you need to have an employee, you hire Trinet and Trinet puts your person on their payroll. Interesting, nice. right? Nice. And nice. so and so the way they figured it out is that if you're a very small organization, small company, you don't necessarily have the HR team in house to mm-hmm. do all the the paperwork and withholding. Like all you want to do is cut somebody a check on Friday and a screening, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you can just send Trinet that check. They deal with all of the the paperwork and all that other stuff, and then you go, you know, do what you're good at. So, yeah, yeah, so I bring like that up this. because that's a way around if you're, if you don't know, mm-hmm. there's organizations like Trinet that you mm-hmm. can go to and you can say, I don't want to deal with this. I'm too small or I don't want to deal with this because it's not part of my mission to just build up this big staff. Mm-hmm. It's kind of an inverted version of a temp agency. And yes. Instead of, instead of going to a temp agency and saying, I need employees, you're going to Trinet and saying, I have employees. Uh, but I don't want them to be my employees. Yes. You know, so um, there's like that. There's ways around it. So I just brought that up because we happen to be staring at these right here. Nice. Nice. So third of our list of five. And you brought this up with the for profit organizations. It's the same thing with nonprofits. Harvard Business School research shows that one of the biggest things dogging nonprofit organizations, losing track of petty cash. <laughs> that, oh, man. That, your, your response indicates to me that you've maybe seen this yeah. once or twice. See, what the, the problem is there's a lot of people not clearly understand what is defined as petty cash. You going out to purchase um, a, a chair from, from Staples is this not petty cash? <laughs> uh, and often what you'll see what people do in, in, or the misuse of petty cash, which is, you know, every day we're going to do breakfast or, or we're going to do weekly uh, pizza parties or um, and, and, and they're they, they're using petty cash for personal uses or or, you know, they're using a. Um, for personal, under the guise of we're doing a group meeting, <laughs> that type of thing. So uh, when when we talk about petty cash, you know, uh, this is actually a discussion I had with one of my clients Friday, and uh, their petty cash was was like um, maybe five hundred a month. And I'm like, what 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 do you what do you need five hundred dollars a month for petty cash? Explain to me what's going on, and. It wasn't that it was just that people were uh, misusing. There was no policy and procedures in place to, out- to outline. Here's the scope of petty cash. So petty cash is 
is should be used for those those incidental small needs. Uh, you ran out. Of, can I really say you ran out of sta- staples? Maybe you ran out it of staples. Happens. Yeah, you you needed five dollars to jump in it, or was seven dollars to jump in the cab? Boy, five dollars. Where are you yeah, going? So seven dollars jump in the cab. Go, you know, a couple blocks from here. Have a receipt. That's it. Yeah, it's not petty cash. Shit is not used as operational expense. Petty cash really, it sounds like, are those things. That, I mean. In a functioning organization, petty cash is actual cash mm-hmm. that's in a locked box. That's in a locked box. Or now I say debit cards, too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this brings up an interesting point because debit cards, credit cards now give us the ability to track pretty precisely yes. where this money's going. That's so if, yeah. if you have a debit card or a credit card in place, is that even petty cash or does that expense get logged as its appropriate category when the purchase gets made the the it's still logged as petty cash it comes down to what are we using it for Mm -hmm. you know what are we using it for uh so we're using it for a cab ride you know uh we're using it for maybe ran out staples it's it's you know uh and it's normally it's 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 normally used as the, the the last minute oh man you know we need it for this yeah now it also comes down to people say, well, you know, we had a last minute this thing and we needed an extra three hundred dollars. I don't know, you know, because, uh, you know, I and, I and I think it's it's incumbent upon the management to say, you know, here's our cutoff point right here, you know, uh, and plan better. Uh, I have uh, one of my clients uh, down in Delaware. You know, we we instituted a policy that if it's not even in, if it's not in place, forget it. It, it doesn't it won't it's not going to be funded. And, you, you know, the students will just be disappointed and you can't go into petty cash to, yeah. to, to do it. So, so if you want to schedule a pizza party, you go in advance and you schedule that out through your meals yes. and entertainment budget. Yes. You can't just yes. pull money out of the lockbox and tell Julie that it's going to go for T-shirts. It's and the other problem, <laughs> the other thing was what is happening now and, and, and what the internal revenue, and, and actually you'll see this with many of the the audits that are being performed by external accountants, there's the mixing of petty cash money with fundraising money with other activities money. So that's another, you know, like there have been uh, one of my clients, they had a carnival and they just kind of brought the money over from, which was fundraising and gave it to someone to put in petty cash. Like, no, that's... Yeah, that's so a, that's something that's that's another thing we're 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 seeing a lot. There's it, it segues into the next one on the list, but I'm not going to tell you what that is just yet. Okay, uh, but what is what happens or what should happen if your nonprofit has their hands on a lot of cash? What's the what's the process? You know, don't let I, I kind of so I kind of. Uh, you see, I'm stuttering here. I just really realized or kind of, uh, and, and, and maybe shame on me, how much cash is really going through a lot of nonprofits. Uh, one of my clients, they were moving between three to $6,000 a week for a charter school. You understand, that's a lot of money. So first, whenever there is cash collection, you have to find a way to record it. Simple. You know, in an earlier message, we talked about shopkeep. Even if you have a little register tape, I don't like register tapes. I like something a little more, <laughs> something a little more digital, something I could track by the expense, you know, or the purchases and those things. But you have to track it. You need you need normally someone who can ring it up and another person who can, uh, you know, so one person who can handle the clients, another person who can ring it up. You know, segregation of duties, and then the money is deposited. And uh, record it by into the uh, and normally what what uh, what I have normally set up with clients because well it actually all depends on what state you're in and what type of system they're using but uh, you'll normally see when it comes to petty cash or cash collection not pet, not cash uh, petty cash cash collection you will see that um, I'll have a separate I know you set up a separate QuickBooks Online system for them, and then we'll make a, a, a journal entry into their uh, to record in their uh, large accounting information system. So this all falls under the broader header of our fourth topic on the list today, which was internal controls. Yeah. 
Okay. And that, and that's a really a subset where the internal control in this case is having that policy and procedure for what happens when, if you're part of a nonprofit that you've got folks by the highway collecting cash in, uh, you know, see firefighters collecting cash in boots, right. For the volunteer fire company, that doesn't mean that you can just grab cash out of the boot and pay for the pizza, you have to have a policy in place yeah. to count the cash, record it. That's it. You know, the, the pizza money comes out of another budget. Yeah. Right? I, it sounds, you know, to hear this, our, our mind naturally says, no, no, this is how it should get done. But when when it's time to practice that, there's a total deviation. And uh, I, I've seen uh, CEOs and co-directors actually go in the... I've actually seen with CEOs or co-directors have uh, have a cash collection uh, safe box go in there, take money out to pay for another expense, and say, "Oh, I owe you." <laughs> and so, and yeah. So, w- what do you think the mindset is of a director that's using that as their process? Um, I'm the founder, and and oftentimes you can't tell me what to do. And, and, and I would say 50% of the time it's that way. It doesn't mean they're bad. It just simply means that uh, no one has come in and put policy and procedures and, and educated them on that. Here are the risks that will arise if you continue in this behavior. So that's and there there is resistance. Normally, they'll come around when you say you do know uh, and, and I give them a case report, say, look, I had this is what happened to someone else. This is what, this is what can happen. You know, it's going to possibly happen to you if you can, you know, if you continue to practice like, you know, uh, your activities like this. So, yeah, what it comes down to there is not just a process for the sake of process. The process is designed to prevent even the appearance of wrongdoing. That is correct. Because I, I can think of some cases where nonprofit directors, founders, if a rumor gets out, it could be that a journalist has picked up a lead that there's wrongdoing in an organization. Mm-hmm. I come from a small town right outside of Philadelphia where in town councils even – uh, rivalries will pop out. <laughs> Someone will start a rumor about somebody else that, well, did you know that the head of the volunteer fire department mm-hmm. took money out of that boot? And all of a sudden now you're, you're doing rumor control. Yeah. The process is there to, for you to be able to say, no, not only did that not happen, mm-hmm. here's our process for how we handle cash. Mm-hmm. This is what protects everybody that's involved in the organization. Yeah. yeah. It's hard though to sell new directors, especially on the idea of putting a preventative policy in place though. Is it new directors? Let's say someone that's new in their role or new in an organization, they're just starting out, right? Mm -hmm. So I decide I want to raise funds to save orphaned kittens. Okay. (laughs) And I've never run any kind of organization before, but all I know is I can stand out here with the boot, get money for the orphan kittens, and I can just do whatever I want with that money as long as it goes towards the kittens. Right. Yes. (laughs) But the moment that I start taking money out of that and paying for my lunch, even if I put an IOU note in there, what are the implications for, for me as a director? It's, it's the, the, yeah, the, and, and, you know, what I normally see with the new directors, a lot of times first, they just only see their desire to help out. So they're blinded by that. And oftentimes they will take it as a personal attack on them, you know. Uh, and so you uh, what my approach has been has been to educate, you know, the client. Let me explain to you. Here are the rules. Here's how this is going to impact you. There has been incidents where the directors have pretty much told me to go to hell <laughs> and I have to take it one step above to the board treasurer or which is uh, the chairman of the board and say, look, man, you know, this person right here, you know, they're you know, you brought me in to give them guidance, advice, and they're not following this. And, you know, what I would say is now here's what I need. Well, here's what I want you to do is here's a policy, y'all vote on it, and have penalty. 
because now you ha- almost you have to handcuff the di- the 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 directors from you know um, hurting their own selves in the long run. Yeah, own and, self in the long run. And I think you bring up a great point. It's it's these are policies that are there not just for compliance, but mm-hmm. they're there to protect everyone that's a part of the organization, All the stakeholders from the chairman on down. On down, yeah. Because you don't want a donor in your face at a board mm-hmm. meeting asking you to respond to a rumor that cash was mishandled. And, 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 and I don't know if we've talked about this in, in our, I don't believe so, but often when you see problems that may arise up financially in an organization, you would also see the lack of board participation also. And uh, normally the board is, is not so much their buddy, buddy, but the board have, you know, the, the members of the board have lives. So at seven o'clock at night, eight o'clock, nine, they're not, they don't really want to talk business. They want to kind of say, yeah, 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 everything's, everything is good. When it norm, what happens is their lack of participation and, and, and uh, some of them uh, not having a competency, they're not competent enough to say, hey, or the, or the knowledge to say, look, you know, um, this doesn't make sense, you know, or, or, or if they're examining the financial statements and they, they don't know what to look for. They're not going to engage like that. They're not going to engage the directors like that. And, and, and quite often what I've seen, they've actually just put, given, given a stamp off of the word of what the co-directors present. So there's a correlation between level of board activity and the findings of either carelessness or all the way out to wrongdoing. That is correct. Mm. That is correct. So the remedy to that is making sure that the board is incentivized to be very active, uh, not necessarily be activist board members, but mm-hmm. part of the board's responsibility is to know that the fiscal oversight falls on them too. That is correct. Does that correlation pop out? Do you see anything in terms of how individuals get selected to serve on nonprofit boards. <laughs> I, know, I promise we didn't we didn't rehearse that question in advance. No, we didn't. So you know, I is you know is there a bias when we're you know when we're screening for who we want to sit on our board to kind of you know because so normally. This is what I have seen. You know, you'll see normally the co-director or the director as the founders. And as they're putting their mission together, their nonprofit together and their, you know, their business plan, they're looking for people who will, you know, 70, 50, 50 percent, you know, 50, 50. They'll give me a rubber stamp. They'll kind of go along. We, we have a trust, uh, trusted relationship, established relationship. You know, and they're they're in favor of my expansion. Okay, so these people are on the board, and and oftentimes you don't. I haven't seen many, if any, board members who have gotten paid for anything. So that's not normally the problem. What happens is things are going well, and the board simply says, you know, this is our guy. We like him, and we don't have no problems until a uh, hundred thousand dollars is missing or. Or you have to ask the question: Why are why does the the the, the co-director of this nonprofit has two Cadillacs uh, for 2014, and and we know he's only been here for five years. There's no other job. You know the, these these things type, and or you can't fund a program. You know, and the money is coming up short. And then you'll see the them they'll you know, and they, and, and it's it's really t- it's really it's really funny because they don't want to come out and ask a guy, "Yo, man, did you did did you steal money?" Like they don't want to do that. They kind of say, "We're going to bring in the outside consultant, let him <laughs> present the argument." Yes, and we'll say, "Yeah, you know, man, this is what this guy said." But I also have seen where where the board has said, "Look." You know, this guy has stolen, um, I'm trying to make sure I'm not giving out no real figures here, $235,082. And they've, they've been... And coincidentally, there's a boat in this person's driveway that it yeah. is the exact amount yeah. of that, that missing money. And, and they're hurt. They're like, I've yeah. seen where the, the, the chairman of the board is like, are you, are you kidding me? And, and this is like, this is our, this is our friend. But also... They bring what, you know, what I try to engage clients is, you know, 
Yeah, you bring in me, you bring in offsite to get things right for you. But also I want you to engage to, 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 you know, you, your job is to make the directors accountable and you give them oversight, you know, and that's where I have seen some resistance from the board. And, and coming back to the idea of positive intent, let's say that manager, that founder, director has two Cadillacs in the driveway, they're brand new, only pulls a $35,000 a year salary. And what board members might not know is because their spouse is the CEO of a major corporation and those are perks of that job. Or uh, a friend of mine just went to work for a car manufacturer and one of the first things they did was say, oh, and by the way, you get two cars. Nice. Yeah, which is great, (laughs) right? But if that person's wife who happens to be, so just so you know, I'm not subtweeting anybody here, but let's say that person's wife is a board member of a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's the kind of thing where you want all of these internal controls and disclosures to be out there so you don't run into it. Yeah, yeah, so it's basically, yeah, I have these two cards, cars because my spouse works here mm-hmm. and they're company vehicles. Yeah. I, you know, and this cash that comes in and goes out is handled this way. Mm-hmm. And all of these policies are there to make sure that the board and all the stakeholders can just get down to the mission exactly. and not have to have any kind of infighting or, or rumors or speculation mm-hmm. or anything that can damage the... The, the, the organization, organization. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it it really detracts and it's it's really sad to see things like that deteriorate an organization yeah. from the inside especially one that's doing really good work what what i'm what i'm what we're currently dealing with now is with one of my clients is that you know an incident of theft did arise and what we have been working with is now you know we're we're bringing a, a, a an asset to market and striving to educate the current board members to engage, but engage to make the business a going concern, not to, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Because uh, not, you know, don't look for your own personal profit too. One, one of the things I'm, I'm beginning to see is that, you know, there has not, you know, with Sarbanes uh, and Oxley, you know, uh, the focus was on for-profit companies. But now what you, uh, uh, be, what's happening is they're now applying that same criteria to the nonprofit world. And what I'm examining, what I'm beginning to see is that many of the boards are, are also like the co-directors who very self-centered and they, some at times they lack the objectivity. And so even in their engagements, it's like, you know, how how do I get a not even so much a commitment advantage for the company, but to hold on to their own legitimacy in the organization. Mm. Yeah. And and Sarbanes-Oxley, that came out of Enron. Yes, right? that came out of Enron, and a so for-profit this, company. This was basically a movement and a new set of laws that really specified how large companies and I think the cutoff is into what we would still call kind of a small to medium sized business. Mm-hmm. It's employees of, um, do you know what the threshold is? No, I, I, I forgot. I want to say it's a hundred or more or 50 or more. I'm yeah. not sure. Um, but the idea there is that even in smaller companies, everyone's really being held accountable to those standards yes. anymore. And if you want to do business in any way, this applies to nonprofits too. If you want to do business as a vendor to a government organization, you've got to to post. If you you want to go on uh, security SEC, uh, if you want to be uh, on a stock exchange. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then on the nonprofit side, you want Mm -hmm. to participate in RFPs. That's right. You really have to adhere to those guidelines. That's right. So if you're a small startup nonprofit, Mm -hmm. it behooves you right out of the gate to make sure that you're aspiring to that same level of compliance yeah. as somebody like the United Way or the, the YMCA. Yeah. You, you know, what? see, you know, and, and, I, and I guess I'd definitely like to hear your opinion on this, is that one of the, one of the questions is, has, has the, you know, when we think United Way, uh, Salvation Army, do, you know, do they have 
professionals from the business world operating them. Yeah, and this is one of the things I saw when I worked in public radio, public broadcasting, the university sector. You have, I think the gap has closed Mm -hmm. somewhat compared to when I was more active in nonprofits, but you would have this parallel universe of almost tenured professionals. Mm -hmm. So people that came up through the nonprofit ranks Mm -hmm that were institutionalized. Mm-hmm. And I say that not in the way that you know, straight jacket and, <laughs> you know, shot to the yeah. neck. Um, I say that in terms of large institutions that are nonprofit on paper, but operate very similarly to fortune 500 companies. That's, that's what I wanted. You, you have lots yeah. and lots of people in very specialized departments. You have a lot of overhead. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, to my knowledge, I think that was what some of the criticism of United Way was Mm -hmm. when the books got opened there. And I don't recall any, any sense that any money was distributed wrongly Mm -hmm. at United Way. But the criticism was, is this as efficient as you can possibly be yeah. to yeah. an outside of, to the, to the critics of that organization at the time, mm-hmm. they saw a lot of people drawing salaries that mm-hmm. were working in jobs that looked very similar to jobs that were in the for-profit sector. Mm-hmm. You would have marketing coordinators and sponsorship coordinators and <laughs> program coordinators yeah. And, and there wasn't really a distinction between what a marketing coordinator does at a large nonprofit versus what one would do working mm-hmm. for a bank, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so that's where we get into that, that bigger issue of what we're seeing in the startup space, which mm-hmm. is you've got large institutional nonprofits, mm-hmm. the Salvation Armies, mm-hmm. the United Ways of the World, and they have, by definition, large staffs. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the American Red Cross is under similar scrutiny these yeah. days. Uh, all the money that came in for Hurricane Sandy, yeah. because one of the things that happens is we get motivated by natural disasters mm-hmm. to donate to the Red Cross. Yeah. Red Cross is going to take in more during that period of crisis mm-hmm. than they would possibly use yeah. to respond to that crisis. But then you have donors that start to feel like, well, I wanted that money to go yeah. here. That's yeah. where we've talked before about the mm-hmm. idea of restricted versus unrestricted it's, it's, funds. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, those donations are not restricted, but That's donors right. may in their mind say, that. Mm-hmm. say oh, I thought mm-hmm. this was going to yeah. that. Yeah. So you have criticism there. Uh, then you have criticism of why why do you have a driver that's on salary? Well, mm-hmm. actually, if you want a good driver, you can't always count on volunteers. You might yeah. need to put somebody yeah. on staff. Mm-hmm. So, so you have big, big staffs. The thing that I'm starting to observe are for-profit organizations that have social impact as part of their mission. Mm-hmm. And the distinction is that they may go more directly into a for-profit venture, Mm -hmm. but with the stated intention of foregoing some profits or putting profit back into a mission of some kind. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing more of that because those founders would rather go after the business side of things Mm -hmm. and not be encumbered by the reporting, the reporting Mm -hmm. or the whims of donors. Yeah, exactly. So, Mm -hmm. so we see different people come into their idea of fulfilling a mission with different approaches. Mm -hmm. Some are starting nonprofit organizations, hoping that it can scale in a certain way. And some are saying, no, I think I can fight this problem by founding a business Mm -hmm. that's going to be dedicated to to fighting this issue. Yeah. Yeah. Now, across the board, uh, keeping track of all the funds is, yeah. is paramount. The yeah. one thing that we've learned is there's no real distinction between for-profit and non-profit. You need to know where the money came from. You need That's to know right. where it goes. That's right. So the fifth issue that foils erstwhile nonprofits, according to the Harvard Business Report, uh, lack of the appropriate accounting software. <laughs> That's and interesting. And that's interesting. Go ahead. That's, Go ahead. Th- this is where the research again and again shows that uh, you have a couple of different things. Mm-hmm. One is uh, you might have organizations that don't rely enough on any kind of software. That's this correct. This is probably the same organization that puts all the money in petty cash in a lockbox in Julie's, you know, 
<laughs> file drawer yeah. and then they get it out of there yeah. when she's not looking. Yeah. Right. Um, but then you have situations where a uh, nonprofit is using software that's not specialized enough, enough for their needs. That is the correct. flip side is you might have a nonprofit that invests too heavily or gets something that's too robust. big, too mm-hmm. robust. Mm-hmm. Right. So what's the process that you take a new client through when they're selecting software to figure out what's the right, what's the Goldilocks scenario for you? Nice. The, the Goldilocks <laughs> scenario for me is um, I normally sit down with the client and, and, and I uh, want to understand, you know, what business they're in. So since the majority of my uh, clients are, are charter schools, uh, I normally ask, let me see your budget. Because I want to see how the uh, the budgets expense line items look. How does the revenue line items look? Then I say, I'll say, you know, what? Who do you have to report to? Because that's a different set of the outline changes according to what government agency you're going to report back to. So, uh, you know, with, <clears throat> with the Internal Revenue Service, you know, it's uh, functional expenses. With the uh, with the uh, uh, Department of Education and PA is uh, uh, was the final expenditure report, and these are they're 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 a little similar, but they're different in, in their allocations and how it's report, and that's how I, you know I normally make my determination. Also, now say if it's it's not a charter school, it's it's a it's a nonprofit that has maybe twenty million dollars, have uh, maybe five different program people, and and and. They're, how they generate revenue is diversified. I'm probably not going to use uh, a, and this is not to, not QuickBooks. I'm going to probably scale up to something like what is called BlackBot, something like that, which is more module-driven, robust. Uh, the customization, you can really tweak it there. And, when, you know, as, as that final decision comes down to what's the simplest way I can present a report and get the data that I want in a reasonable amount of time. And then setting it, taking the time to set it up uh, according to those parameters. And the reporting piece is something that uh, often I think gets underplayed when directors are making decisions about how they're allocating resources. The reporting, we've talked about this a little bit, but it sounds like there's the compliance level reporting, mm-hmm. what you have to f- send out to tax agencies Mm -hmm. and donors Mm -hmm. and government agencies. But then there's also the business intelligence piece. That is correct. So what's, what are some examples of things that you can learn by looking at the report to justify getting software that goes beyond just telling you this money went into column X and this money went into column Y. When I'm trying to make predictions with maybe a 5% or 10% deviation, that, that level of comfort. When I'm, when, um, you know, when we consider, we, we talked about Katrina, and say you had, and I'm using boots on the ground as people going out taking donations, and you need to, uh, you, need, you need a platform that can, you know, mobilely process these payments and automatically, automatically put them into the cloud and then put them, uh, dump them to the accounting information system. There, that's when the opportunity says, you know, you know what, we have to scale up. What often what I've seen with the directors, and I know I've been harping on the accountants, you know, I think the accountants do not make a, a, a sale of, you know, why you should take this approach and why the upfront cost is needed. And, and, and I believe, you know, if, 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 if we had, to, if accountants take the time to say, look, sure, maybe the first 90 days is going to cost us maybe four, four or $5,000 over than what we want, really want to pay, let's pay it. But here, let me show you some examples of the results we can get, you know, uh, 60 days out. And normally they'll say, and it'll be, it'll, you know, and, and, and then they also, they have to present, you know, a uh, scheme of how we can pull this off too, as they're making this presentation to the director, you know, the cost benefit, they'll, they'll bite when it comes to, you know, you know, buying something more robust, they, they, the client has to, we, as the, as the accountants have to say, here's the benefit and here's why it's going to work. Um, and, and, and oftentimes is it, 
No, because what I've seen is if they, if they, if it comes down to money, is 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 nothing else to be said. We don't have the money. We can't afford it. You know, and here's the alternative until we get the money, and you know, we can scale up. So, if I'm hearing you correctly, it requires some visionary leadership among the board, among the directors, among the managers. Yes, to be able to understand that solid accounting software can provide you strong business intelligence. Yes. Let you make better decisions, improve your fundraising, maximize efficiency in your spending. Yes. Uh, that's requiring nonprofit leaders to take a pretty big leap. Yeah. But uh, it's also the leap that I hear you asking for is for accounting professionals to join the conversation that software vendors are already having. That's correct. And you, you have to, you know, I, I think they said, you know, it was Jobs. Jobs, you know, they said he he constantly told you that you needed something you didn't know you needed at that time. And the, but, thing, the, yeah. thing, and the thing that Steve Jobs used to say about selling computers is that the computer is not the thing. The computer is the thing that gets you to the thing. That is correct. Right? And that's a, yeah. And and that's really what we when we talk about the importance of selecting accounting software, mm -hmm. it's about saying you may have some constraints now. Yeah. It may be the decision between buying Blackbaud, mm -hmm. which is maybe five minimum maybe twenty four uh, or five thousand a month. Yeah. And <laughs> and. Having Blackbaud means we don't get to have one more person out on kitten patrol. Yeah. Right. But right now, but what that does mean is that we can use that tool to identify for next year. Yeah. 15 more places that we can increase revenue that maybe get us five more people yeah. on, on kitten patrol. Definitely. Right. Definitely. So, so that's the, the not, tough not, not just that. You know, we could take it and, and, and we, 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 we can use it to really expand as, as, as our organization expanding, it could contribute to others, uh, department, you know, sectors in our, in our organization, departments in our, in our, in our business and, and, and use that intelligence. And that's the key thing. And, and, and so you want, you know, talk to your development person, you know, what data do you need and how often you need the data you have to engage and, and it really, again, the leadership piece here and the, the knowledge piece is knowing that if you've got five different people running to the petty cash drawer to grab cash to get the same item, uh, if you have all that intelligence, you can recognize that, oh, all these five people need the same item. We now recognize the need for the item and we can maybe source it cheaper in bulk. Yes, then have everybody keep putting in petty cash expenses for yes. it. Yes, yeah. So, so all these controls, all this software, I think the the mentality among American workers often gets to the point of, well, th all this stuff is here to prevent me from doing anything. But in really effective organizations, it sounds like all these tools are there to protect you from making mistakes that can jeopardize your mission but also to help you identify the opportunities where you can be leaner and execute your mission at that a higher true. level. That is true. All that right. Is true. So that wraps up the list of the five potential pitfalls for nonprofit organizations. And we will be back uh, in the new year with even more episodes of the Offsite Podcast. For Darnell Suleiman, I'm Joe Taylor Jr. Have a great new year, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Joe. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions stated represent those of the speakers and not those of their employers, the producers, 2820 Press, or any program sponsors. This podcast does not constitute legal, business, or financial advice, nor should you take any action on anything you hear during this podcast without consulting a competent advisor. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast or blog. This has been a 2820 Radio Production.